0: This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit with your host, Pat McMahon. I've got a Hostetler, huh? You want to top that? I've got a Sherry (laughs) Hostetler, and that's the one that was just answering me right now. And she and Sarah Augustine, uh, probably if she spent a great deal of time in the Catholic Church, she would pronounce it Augustine. But it's Sherry Augustine, who's off doing serious business, and Sherry Hostetler is here as our guest, yours and mine, to talk about the book, So We and Our Children May Live, subtitled, Following Jesus in Confronting the Climate Crisis. If you don't believe there is a climate crisis, you probably should stick around anyway, because even if you're listening in Manila... Uh, or Lisbon, wherever it is that you're listening in the world to The God Show right now, you're going to find this to be a very productive and fascinating conversation. Well, Sherry, the rest of that, of course, is up to you. So why don't you start by explaining the coalition to dismantle the doctrine of discovery?
1: Yes, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Pat. I'd be happy to start that way. Um, well, in 2014, I met Sarah Augustine, who is a, a woman of Pueblo Tewa descent, so Native woman. She also refers to herself as a displaced person because for all sorts of reasons related to colonization and unjust treatment of Native Americans, she was um, severed from her, actually, tribal uh, group. But um, anyways, Sarah uh, Sarah basically um changed my life I met her and she said um through our talking and through just getting to know each other uh she basically said hey do you want to start a movement together in the the Mennonite church and then other Christian churches that is um will take probably a hundred years to accomplish and we won't see the effects of it in our lifetime and I said sure um and it really is a movement to decolonize uh, our our faith, the world, to basically bring indige- in justice for indigenous people, and follow their lead in doing the work of decolonization and of undoing the harms that have been done over the last 500 years and are still ongoing. So we ch- really seek to animate. We started with Mennonite and Anabaptist people of faith, but really seek to extend that to. Um, all Christian peoples and beyond, uh, to animate them to join with us in this in the struggle. So that's what the coalition is. It's a group of people of faith coming together to do that.
0: But she comes from indigenous origins, and yes. you come from the Hostetlers. I do. Okay, well, how did the bond start?
1: Well i grew up uh within an amish mennonite community yes. in ohio and my uh family has been amish or mennonite for uh really more than uh back into like at least the 1600s um but, but mennonites include more than people like me who have who have whose families have been within that spiritual tradition for a very long time Sarah is also what we call a convinced Mennonite. She became Mennonite um, as an adult and uh, became convinced by the particular set of beliefs and practices that we hold. So we met because we were both Mennonite. And um, I had never, yeah. So she, actually what happened is a mutual friend, Anita Amstutz, had been in a women doing theology conference that had been sponsored by the Mennonite church. Sarah was there, Anita met her, Said, you've got to meet this woman and 10 years later here i am my life is completely different as a result of meeting sarah
0: tell sarah when you talk to her that you talked to this irish guy in phoenix arizona uh, about this subject and he said hey you know what we did a fascinating hour not long ago you can still <laughs> find it on google about the native american children Oh,
1: thank you so much for doing
0: that. wound up in orphanages. And the woman, the guest, was Australian, which uh, actually was an area where this took place also, not just in the United States with uh, Native Americans, but Native Australian indigenous people there, uh, also had the sin of those foster homes, those... Uh, those terrible places where they were virtually imprisoned uh, as children. And I know that you know about those. I just wanted to have you tell Sarah that we were extremely interested in that because, of course, also I'm surrounded by, I think, 22 different tribes here uh, in Arizona. But the subtitle of your book, the title is So We and Our Children May Live, subtitled... Following Jesus in confronting the climate crisis, how is Jesus concerned one way or the other about the climate crisis?
1: <laughs> well, we believe that Jesus came to bring shalom, or what I think of as holistic uh, abundance and well-being, to the whole world. Uh, people, I believe, creation, um, I believe that Jesus' message, which is uh, he came to announce and enact what is called in the in the New Testament, the kingdom of God, I like to call it the kin-dom, K-I-N-dom of God. That's, mm-hmm. I'm not the only person who does that. It's basically the, 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 the community of creation and to live in right relationship with each other. And so climate change And I would say ecological degradation as a whole represents um, a wrong relationship. (laughs) We have a wrong relationship with creation, and it is now producing consequences like climate change. That's the thing that's most in the news. But as you know from reading my book, it's it's more than just climate change. We really are facing breakdowns in ecological systems all around us. And climate change is actually, we say in the book, only a symptom of this bigger of this bigger crisis.
0: But since you took the liberty of splitting the the word kingdom into two syllables, Hmm. uh, the king part, I suppose most of us can understand. But have we just simply been dumb or is it because of the temptation of wealth that we've gotten to the position that we're in?
1: Oh wow, that is a really complicated question. But in short, I would actually say yes, um, because what the problem is, as we talk about this in our book, and 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 just to be clear, I am a pastor of a Mennonite church, but I'm also uh, used to be a journalist, and I'm um, I was a researcher, and so what I'm hold doing.
0: Hold it, hold is, it, just well, a yes, second. You yes. use the J word. And I want to know where it is that you professionally practice journalism. I mean, you're on the radio now.
1: I started out in newspapers. So I worked for actually a, a, a small weekly and a small daily newspaper in Ohio, where I'm from. Yeah. Did that for a while. And then I actually, not because I wanted to, but because it's where I found a job, I started getting into medical journalism. And I did that for a few years. Um, And then I eventually kind of had this spiritual awakening, uh, reawakening I guess I would say, and decided I really wanted to go uh, to seminary and study theology and that kind of started taking me out of the world of journalism but I've been a writer and an editor my entire life.
0: Well and everybody listening right now, the show has been on for something like 24 years uh, and it does have a, a pretty loyal audience, they want to know who it is that we bring into their homes and their cars. Hmm. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I want to ask you. If your focus on the environment generally, does it begin with your Mennonite and Amish background?
1: Well, it's interesting you ask that question because I just asked somebody that question yesterday, and what that person said to me was, it starts with the land. And I think, now that's not true for everybody. Everybody has different avenues into environmental work. But for me, it did really begin with the land. I grew up in a what I think of as a little corner of Eden. Um, it was an Amish Mennonite farming community. Um, you know, as you know, Amish don't use fossil fuels in their house or their, well, They don't, they often don't, they use horses. Did you ride, did you ride
0: in carriages when you went to church on Sunday? No,
1: I grew up Mennonite. So two generations, uh, three generations ago, my family was Amish, but then they slowly started becoming more acculturated, more, less, less Amish, more assimilated, I guess you could say, to mainstream society. By the time I grew up, I mean, we were, we lived more simply, I would say, than a lot of people did, but we 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 drove
0: it was so, a, you know we're, it was a we're Chevy so. truck that was uh, transporting <laughs> the Hostetler family
1: i think it was a buick but you know a buick <laughs> sedan but that's okay <laughs> so no i didn't uh, but i grew up surrounded by the amish and you know i'm i'm like i said i'm my my father and my father's first language was pennsylvania dutch which is a dialect oh. of the amish um so it's there's a lot of a mush there's a lot of gray area between Amish and Mennonites in some respects although we did we very clearly were Mennonites we drove cars i went i went the got my education all that stuff i was so outside i was
0: outside of Allentown Pennsylvania and i tell you this uh, only because of the fact that i think you'll find it interesting whether the rest of the audience is even listening at this point uh no i I remember when you're talking about Pennsylvania Dutch and Mennonite background, Amish background. I was outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania, in a little village, and I stopped because I was just so parched and i needed I needed some kind of a cold drink and I stopped at this little store, I mean, really a village market and I stopped at this store. You just reminded me of this and I said, May I have a glass of lemonade and the and the the lady behind the display area said the lemonade is all <laughs> and I thought, All lemon <laughs> all being prepared right now for me all (laughs) being what i I, (laughs) so you're giggling because you get it don't you
1: i you're it was one of the first things (laughs) my boston irish american husband commented on when he came to visit me some of these weird sayings we have and he said that was one of the first ones he was completely flummoxed by that.
0: Oh, you've got to tell him. You've got to tell him, because for the rest of the audience, she meant it was all gone.
1: It was all gone. Yes, yeah.
0: it had all been purchased. And and <laughs> and what else would you like? Oh, foreign visitor from <laughs> Scranton. Uh, okay, thank you. I really am glad, uh, Sherry, that you... You understood what I was talking about because I had no idea what was going on. Listen, has has Christianity, in your opinion, by way of what has been going on with the environment around the world, has Christianity failed the planet?
1: Hmm. That is a really good question. Um, I would say that so, uh, colonization was justified by the the Christian Church. and unfortunately, there is within, I'd say, some mainstream Christianity this idea that really comes from more the Enlightenment, I think. Um, so Christianity has existed for two thousand years. So I'm pinpointing the time where I think Christianity, one of the times where I think Christianity went astray, so with the, Enlightenment, with the Enlightenment, Christianity did develop this idea of we are to have dominion over the earth, and um, you know we basically can use nature for our purposes. Um, it's 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 it. I think alongside Enlightenment thought and the scientific thought, it, this idea developed that it, nature is a resource for us to use rather than a more indigenous idea of nature as relative. Um, so I do think Christianity holds a, a, a fair amount of responsibility for the way we treat the environment. I wouldn't want to put that though on any one religion because I think it's deeper than that.
0: But do you think that that religion in general, though, uses what you and Sarah call the dominant part of our population?
1: Yeah, you're saying does, does the dominant population tend to use religion? I can't speak for anything outside of Christianity. I'm not Jewish or Muslim, and so and I do know that many indigenous peoples they you have spirit have cosmologies and and, and and understandings of the world that are very consistent with what I would call an ecological worldview. But I do think that the Christianity as a kind of Christianity has been out of whack, out of sync with ecological understandings for a long time now. But
0: don't you hold the Catholic Church primarily responsible?
1: No, um, yeah, I don't really. I mean, they, uh, it was like, I, I, I don't, no, I don't hold the Catholic Church primarily responsible. I think all of what we call Christendom now uh, participated in that.
0: Are you optimistic at all that it's not <laughs> already too late? I, I really, in reading the book, would read page after page, and then it seemed if it was doom around the corner. And then all of a sudden, when I got around the next corner in your book, it seemed there was hope. Yeah. Well, what about you? Are you optimistic, or is it already too late? Here you are sitting, sitting on a glamorous island, <laughs> looking across San Francisco Bay at the city. And that's great life.
1: Well, just to be clear, that view is about 20 minutes away from me. But you're right. I could be there in 20 minutes and seeing that. It's beautiful. I am – so I think the question I have is too late for what? Um, I think that this this growth-oriented economy we have that has to grow in order to survive and and be healthy and not go into recessions and depression – is ruining the planet. We can't keep growing. We can't keep consuming resources. We can't keep polluting the earth at the rate we are because basically it's time to, the, the earth is saying I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I can't keep, I, I, it's, it's too much. We're consuming and polluting too much. Um, so I do think it's too late for this, this economy and society that we have built around perpetual growth. And ever increasing levels of consumption and extraction from the earth. I do not think it's too late at all for a a life sustaining civilization and way of being to come in, way of life to come into being. Now, am I hope? I'm hopeful because I actually believe that we're not going to have a choice. I think we're going to have to choose this because we are we we are at a place where we have reached the limits to growth and we're going to have to choose it. Now I I do know that getting there could be hard and I that it is we're already seeing suffering around the globe because of the climate crisis and other e- uh, ecological uh, issues. So I'm not I, I'm not pollyannaish but I'm also not a doomer. Um I I do think it's too late for this particular dominant culture we've built but I think that's also a good thing it is time Joanna Macy I don't know if you're familiar with her she's an buddhist eco philosopher lives here in the bay area just an amazingly wise woman years ago she called this time we're in the time of the great turning the time of a transition away from an unsustainable industrial growth society to a life-sustaining civilization. Now, I think we still, like, we, we do have a choice about that. We can choose whether or not we want to turn towards that life-sustaining way. But I also think we're getting to the place where we are, are, are almost don't have a choice about it. Um, we are just reaching the limits to our growth, and we're seeing this first with climate change. And, um, I think that the way of life we we could choose and that we could build could be a more equitable and beautiful way to live.
0: Okay, and with great respect and with an enormous amount of enthusiasm for the cause, Sherry, let me, though, as the host of the show, take a different perspective, okay? And let, let me ask you, here you are so close to San Francisco proper, right? You look out yes. the window, there's the lights of this great city. Yeah, no, I know that there's homeless and and they've got economic problems, but it's still San Francisco. Get out of my life. Come on. <laughs> and, and in 1965, were you around in 1965?
1: I was three years old.
0: Okay. So then you may have heard that we had this thing called 1965.
1: The Summer of Love.
0: Ah, yes, the Summer of Love, Woodstock. But in San Francisco, life was Woodstock in some neighborhoods year-round. And I mean, there were streets where uh, it was just a matter of people saying exactly what you're saying. Not Amish people, not Mennonite people, hippie people. Everybody was a hippie. And hair was longer than anybody else's and uh, it was the music of Jefferson Airplane and so many <laughs> other so many so many transitional things that were going on societally and an enormous amount of it had to do with the environment yeah i mean you if if you didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to that period of time you must have read about How many editorials that were written in Rolling Stone magazine about the fact that we've got to change the way we do things? We've got to go back to a simpler time. Mm. Do we do we have to give up all the things that technology has provided for us?
1: That is not my understanding. Now I'm relying on people who are more expert at this than I am. There's one expert I really rely on named Nate Hagens, and he has said that in order for everybody, I hope I'm quoting him correctly here, Nate. I'm sorry if I'm not. In order for everybody on this planet to uh, to to live us in a sustainable way, yes, we would need to consume at about the level that the U. S. did back in about 1960, 1970. I think you said 1960. I was alive in 1960. I remember very well what that was like. Uh, Like your average middle class person, I believe, uh, was what the statistic was in 1960.
0: Well, and we're talking about 1965, which is right in the middle.
1: Yeah, Uh, you're right. It is. So, yes, I do. And I also think that there is, uh, I don't think we're talking about, you know, going back to the Stone Age here. But we are going to have to decrease our levels of energy consumption and resource consumption. And um, I think that, you know, one of the things Nate Hagen says, but we know this. Anybody who's got a spiritual or religious orientation toward life knows this. You know, name the, the top five things in your life, experiences in your life. I think most of us would talk, or the things that bring us the most joy, most of us are going to talk about our friendships. We're going to go talk about walks in nature. We're going to talk about our children. We're going to talk about, you know, sharing um, a meal with friends. Um, all of the things we actually value the most are um, d- um, are, are not things that, that we have, either that have been brought about by our wealth necessarily. They're relationships. They're the beauty of nature they're holding a grandchild for the first time. Um, these are the things that actually bring us joy. And yet we're in this consumerist, industrial consumerist model that keeps taking us away from the things that actually bring us the most, most joy.
0: How, so would you, to- how would you feel, though, Sherry Hostetler, co-author of So We and Our Children May Live, with her associate, Sarah Augustine. How would you feel, and would it be forgivable, yeah, let me say that, would it be forgivable, if you heard that one of the listeners right now responded to your question about that most fond memory, Hmm. if that person said, oh, man, it was when I got my first Hummer huge van, and I went across the country at eleven miles an hour and
1: <laughs> you know, I am not saying those people don't exist i and you know if are I, they are they if, evil people oh no, i don't know i don't think that's an, no i i i I don't think that is where the majority of the people find their greatest joy, but there may be people. So
0: uh, I don't consider them evil. You know, what I like about talking to you is is you seem as if you're devoted to the cause, but you don't think that the other folks uh, must be thrown in a well.
1: Well, no, because I don't actually think this is about evil people. I think we've set up a system, and I don't even, I, I, that, that uh, we've set up a system that is about maximizing profits for for individuals and and companies.
0: Capitalism. it,
1: It is, yes. And while there have been good things that have, I'm not one of those people that says there have been no good things that have come from that. We are at the point where this perpetual growth machine that we started off on, I don't think anybody set off, you know, saying, hey, let's come up with an economy that's basically going to exploit workers and ruin the environment. Well, that's actually debatable. But anyways, or at least ruin the environment. Um, nobody, this is a system that we came up with that started on its own. The machine started rolling. And now we're, it's like you're on a, it's like you're on a, uh, you know, actually a metaphor someone used recently that I really loved was, it's like you're um they were saying like this system that we're involved in this perpetual growth system it's like you're in a car and there's a driver driving it or no i take that back they said it's not like there's a driver driving it you realize like who's driving this car why are we about ready to go off a cliff what's going on and then you look up and realize there is no driver in the car it's a driverless car this is a system that we've constructed Apartheid was a system we constructed. Chattel slavery was a system we constructed. We can undo. These systems are made in, in historical time, and they can be unmade in historical time. I don't think that people set off trying to do bad things, but we do have a, a system that is bringing about, uh, is, is making it impossible for life to survive on this planet.
0: Is Wall so- Street at fault for the condition of the planet?
1: Well, Wall Street certainly bears a big responsibility for it because it's sort of a, it's sort of the engine at the heart of it all. Yes, so I would say yes. But I also think that when we but, and I do think, you know, we we need to change laws and policies and structures such that we get off this perpetual growth machine that we're on uh but yeah that's kind of the beating heart of the machine but even there you know this Nate Hagen's guy i referred to he's now an ecological economist as a podcast called the great simplification he was once an investment investment manager with i think solomon brothers and then came to see kind of the the kind of craziness of that whole system but he doesn't demonize actually his uh, his his friends who are still on wall street I think he thinks that they're kind of stuck in a system and don't actually really see what's going on. And his whole podcast is about waking people up to what's going on, which is actually the same reason Sarah and I wrote this book.
0: Sherry Hostetler and Sarah Augustine wrote this book, So We and Our Children May Live. Here's something that I didn't find in the book, and I hope that you'll be able to tell me live on The God Show. Is there a society anywhere on the planet doing it right?
1: Well, I would say that um, you know, um, as one author, Joe Brewer said, um, not every culture has been sustainable, but the sustainable cultures we have are have been indigenous. Um, so oh. and there have and there have been large indigenous quote unquote, well, not quote unquote, civilizations. That existed, uh, in years gone by. You know, we do have some countries that are, um, coming close to, um, closer than the United States is to living within, uh, ecological boundaries while also, um, seeing to the well-being of all of its citizens. Costa Rica is one that comes close to that. Oh. There's a handful of other countries that come close to that. Um, but that is a concept I really love. It actually is a concept that comes from the, this uh, British economist named Kate Rayworth. She has a book called Donut Economics. I really recommend it to people. And she says an economist talking about how do we live with, within the ecological boundaries of the planet while attending to the well-being of all people. Um, and she's asserting that there is this sweet spot in which we can do those things.
0: Ever been to Costa Rica? And
1: I have never been to Costa Rica, but oh, really want to go there. Let
0: me tell you, you and your husband, and Patrick, if he likes to pay his own way, the, <laughs> your son is old enough now that he can kick in with a few bucks. <laughs> but you go there, and you you really find yourself astounded not only at the remarkable natural beauty. Uh, of the place, but also the attention that the citizens pay, the citizens including their children, the attention that they pay to the rivers and the streams and the forests, uh, and and delightedly share with you all of the information that they've acquired and, and excitedly telling you, and did you know this? And take a look at that tree filled with parrots. And uh, they're so proud of the naturalness of the beauty uh, that they have. I was left with that and can't wait to get back.
1: Mm, it's, I, it sounds it sounds wonderful.
0: Your co-author and indigenous peoples that uh, that she makes a, uh, a point of being close to philosophically. Are, are those the folks with the answers, not just your co-author, uh, who is from what people? Uh, the
1: Tewa, who are up yes. the Pueblo people uh, in New Mexico.
0: And there, know- are there philosophies, though, the indigenous people in general? Are their philosophies the ones that we should incorporate into our lives?
1: Well, what we I like that you said in general because you can no more make a general statement in some ways about all indigenous peoples. there's there's many there's thousands of different people groups across the globe. Uh, I mean, even Mennonites who are a very small denomination can't don't all agree on everything. But having said that, there is within, uh, indigenous cultures, especially ones that are, have still been able to practice their indigenous ways, their traditional ways, a wealth of wisdom about what it means to live in right relationship and to live sustainably. And so in our book, we are really calling on, um, uh, people to turn to indigenous thought leaders, and there's so many who are, who have wisdom that is rooted in, you know, their, their, their own cultural knowledge that has been around for millennia that we, uh, we can really learn from. So we are blessed. We are blessed to have, uh, people with this kind of understanding and wisdom in our midst. And we absolutely believe that we need to turn to their wisdom and, uh, indigenous thought leaders and follow the leadership of indigenous people in, learning what it means to be land and water protectors and then learning what it means to be in right relationship with the earth and to live that way.
0: Okay, class, stand by now, please. I hope that you're prepared. Uh, Pick up your pencils. Make sure that you have a clean legal pad in front of you. (laughs) And I would suggest that you have a new legal pad in front of you because we don't know how far Sherry Hostetler is going to take the answer to this next question, Sherry. Oh, uh oh. What are the nine planetary boundaries?
1: Oh. Okay, I'm. I am um, going to cheat by uh, looking it up in my book.
0: Oh really? Although, although is, is I that, think
1: I, I think I can do it on my own. Is your I, book is
0: your book a source for the nine planetary boundaries education that our class might appreciate?
1: Yes, I would say that is absolutely the truth. Okay, so, nine planetary boundaries, climate change, obviously we know about that one, uh, biodiversity. There's also a biodiversity crisis, um, and actually there's been uh, international summits about that, like, about that. Just yeah, to well, just that define,
0: define biodiversity.
1: Biodiversity means both the the uh, variety and diversity of animal and uh, animal species, but it also refers to the populations of animal species. There's been a 69 percent decline in overall population of critters since 1970. A 60 percent decline. We're losing two percent of our insect populations every year for I think it's the past 30 years. Mm. Uh, it's, I mean, and, you know, as I said somewhere recently, we might think, well, I don't like mosquitoes anyways. Um, I do hate mosquitoes, by the way. They bite me all the time. But insects basically provide the basis of our food web. We we cannot survive without them. So that is what biodiversity refers to, both the diversity of uh, of species, but also the overall populations of them. And all of that's going down.
0: And okay. Um,
1: and yeah, and the scientists who came up with the planetary boundaries concept said of these nine planetary boundaries, the two most core ones are biodiversity integrity, they call it, and climate change. And what are so the we're rest? Doing of them? very poorly. What are the rest? So the last okay. There's one called land system change, which just means that we are converting wild lands into lands meant for human that are used for human development. We're overshot on that one. There's one called freshwater use. Which is what it sounds like, freshwater use. And um, there is an article I would turn your ask the readers to look at. Uh, it appeared in August in the New York Times, and it's entitled "America is using up its groundwater like there's no tomorrow." So we are overshooting on groundwater, a uh, freshwater use. There's something that is called biogeochemical flows, but it, what it really means is the potassium i mean I'm sorry the phosphorus and nitrogen that we use in industrial fertilizers uh, and agriculture uh there's so much of that of that now that it is causing problems for our waterways and our soils there's something called ocean acidification which i think people know about because that we know about that connected to climate change um and then there's this weird thing called novel entities which just refers to all of the industrial chemicals and plastics that have been put into our environment over the past, you know, decades. And, um, you know, the the chemicals, or there's this thing called forever chemicals, I can't say exactly, they're, it's got a name attached to them, but they're basically in everything. They're in, you know, burger wrappers and lipstick, and they're you're used for everything. And they are these chemicals that are known to be toxic to human beings and other creatures. And they basically don't go away. We don't know yet how to remove them from the environment. So, and those are the six, if I'm not mistaken, those are the six planetary boundaries that we are—we've gone over the boundary that's considered a safe and acceptable zone by scientists who study this.
0: What happened to the other three? You wrote about nine.
1: In I know. The book. You're, see, now you're gonna—you're gonna get me here because I'm—I might have misspoken. Well, so, so no, nine. so
0: far you've gotten a B plus uh, for okay, the class.
1: Okay. So, thank you. I—I'll take that. Um, so. That ozone depletion is one, and, you know, we are actually doing pretty good on that because we came up with some international agreements about that some decades ago, and now we're doing well with that. And then there's one called atmospheric aerosol loading. Um, That one I am not as familiar with, but we're not over on that one, so I didn't bother reading up on that one too much.
0: Well, I, I've so far counted nine, and uh, Sherry Hostetler, for this class, you should be pleased to know that you moved up to an A minus. Oh, thank you. Uh, the A minus is a, it's a minus only because of your penmanship. Uh,
1: <laughs> I actually that was the one class I got D's in when I was in elementary school. So how did you know?
0: <laughs> Sherry Hostedler was our guest on the God Show, and she and Sarah Augustine have written a book. Called So We and Our Children May Live. Uh, is it that serious right now in this year as we approach a year end? Is it so serious that you're concerned about population dying out?
1: There are some people. Who have the same understandings that I do? Who are very worried about that? I think if we keep going the way we're going, I'm very worried about that. Uh, I, um, I I'm very worried about population die off for animals, um, insects, and when I say animals, I mean all critter critters. Yes. I'm very worried about that, but I do think that we are already seeing to some degree and are going to probably see, um, you know, declines in human population if we keep going the way we're going. Um, Yeah. Okay. You know,
0: automatically any time that I ever talk to in just one-on-one conversation or I have one of these fascinating chats on the God show with someone like you, I always know that I'm going to hear from folks who are saying, no more tree huggers. <laughs> Please, Pat, for God's sakes, you know, just know that this is a society that has done things that no one else in the history of the planet's ever done technically with engineering and with progress and movement along to, for the betterment of mankind. For the betterment of mankind, we have these things in hospitals and we have these things in factories turning out things at such a speed and with such uh, incredible ingenuity that no one would ever have dreamed even 100 years ago in America that it was possible. You want all that to come to an end, Sherry?
1: No, and I don't think it has to come to an end. I think we have to reduce our consumption in the, in the wealthier parts of the world. I want to say very clearly that in some parts of the world, people actually need to increase their consumption to reach a, 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 an acceptable standard of, of, of well-being. But no, I don't think we have to get rid of all of that uh, in order to uh, come to within a sustainable way of living. And I want to say I am really happy there's been many technological developments that have just, I, that I'm super glad about. We are a very ingenious species, which is why I think we actually can solve this. Um, I personally, uh, you know, I had a son 18 years ago and I was 42 when I had him. I was an older mother. They called me of advanced maternal age, was the exact <laughs> definition term of, of medical use that was given to me. And, uh, you know, I was told I, I went through a, almost a two and a half day labor. And at the end I had a cesarean section and my labor nurse told me a hundred years ago, both you and your child would have died. Oh. And I ugh, am extremely ugh. grateful for modern medicine and a lot of what it's brought us. But it is also true that, um, we sometimes think we're more clever than I think we should be. We, we come up with technology that ends up having, um, uh effects that we couldn't anticipate. I think we need to be more judicious and how judicious and how we're using technology. AI, artificial intelligence being just only the latest example of that. Um, you've probably heard the same thing I have that when they surveyed the people who are developing AI, ten percent of them said this is the technology that actually could bring about the end of the world. Yes. As we So, you know, but yet we're going forward because why? Uh anyways So
0: I think they said the same thing about every television show that I've ever been involved in. Well,
1: that is very possible, too. So I am not anti-technology. I am pro-appropriate technology, and I am pro-living within the limits of the ecological limits of life on this planet. I mean, I love trees, and I love critters, but I mean, really, we're talking, even if we're just talking only about human populations, human beings. We are people who live within a finite world and um, we, we are reaching our limits. And we have to, I think we have to accept that it's because I care so much for people that I am so passionate about this.
0: Should we continue, um, should we continue to look for petroleum and petroleum origins or is the electric car going to solve all of those things?
1: Well, actually, most of the middle part of our book is how the electric car isn't going to solve everything. Now, having said that, I think we absolutely have to get off oil and gas. But it is also, um, you'll read in the book, it is so, it's also true that oil and gas is so, I don't think we can, we cannot adopt the appropriate technologies and continue to grow at the same, at, at the expected levels that we expect at the same time. That's, I think, what our point is. Um, we do have to get off petroleum and gas.
0: But can we have technical progress in general and clean air at the same time?
1: Yes, I believe we can. Explain. Well, technological progress, I mean, what 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 do we... Uh, technological process meaning do I need to have... I have an iPhone. Do I need to have an iPhone 16? Do I need to have an iPhone 20? I... I love this idea that somebody proposed that you know on um we could develop technology that every child on their thirteenth birthday gets the laptop computer and the smartphone that they're going to have for the rest of their lives. We could make that laptop and those iPhones with these parts that can be interchanged, so that when we have to update them, maybe we still do. I don't know. Maybe don't even. But we could actually do that. But we have, we develop technology now because we we want to produce profits for corporations. So that's why we are are encouraged, in fact, sometimes have to change out our iPhones and our laptop computers every two to three to five to seven years. I would love to still have the same laptop I had 20 years ago, but it wouldn't work. But we actually do have the ingenuity ingenuity, and the technological know-how to build things that last, but that doesn't bring any profit.
0: Sherry Hostetler, are you saying to me that that you <laughs> Excuse me, I I can't even imagine life without Black Friday.
1: <laughs> I I I could do without Black Friday, but I can't live without Cyber Monday. No, I'm obviously joking.
0: <laughs> no, but there are people right now who are saying, hey, McMahon has got a communist on the, on the radio uh, wants to do away with the whole profit motive uh, and the whole idea of uh, not only building great new things, but of building greater, newer things next year.
1: Well, here's the thing. If you can find a way to do, to do greater newer, build greater, newer things next year and make profit and do it all within the biophysical limits of the planet without destroying indigenous cultures and other cultures at the same time, then let's do it. I just don't think there's any way to do those things.
0: You know, you're talking about not just changing the political system, but you're also talking about changing that which brought us your partner, Sarah Augustine, uh, part of the indigenous people that proudly call themselves Pueblo. And uh, as I'm looking out, the high-rise building that our studio is in, I can virtually see the edges of a reservation of perhaps the Hopi, uh, certainly the Navajo beyond that, and on and on and on. 22 tribes just in Arizona. And is it because of progress passing them by that so many of them, Sherry, And you touch on this in the book often, that so many of them still live in poverty, many without electricity, with water being trucked in. That's right now where a lot of the indigenous people are, because they didn't accept progress.
1: Oh, well, I I don't agree with that. Analysis. Good. Um, we, um, <laughs> I know, I know, I know you were playing the devil's advocate. Um, you know, Sarah Augustine wrote a book two years ago called "This Land Is Not Empty: Following Jesus and Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery." And if you want to read one book on on why that statement is so not true, read that book. We've had five hundred years of uh, well, we've had. I'm more like 300 in this country, but 500 years globally, 300 years in this country of, of policy toward native Americans that had sought at every turn to dispossess them of their land, their wealth, their cultural wealth, their, um, their traditions, um, and mostly their land. They are impoverished because the dominant culture has imp- impoverished them. And, um, it's, um, um, uh, I really encourage you to read that book, to to really feel, not only get a sort of intellectual lesson in what that meant, but to really feel what that means.
0: This this is not a program that concentrates on this issue uh, because there's just so many other things to talk about, uh, all of them hopefully important. But it, coincidentally, last week, I had a member of the Seneca Nation on yeah. talking about Exactly that, and what has been going on culturally, economically, and so on. And I asked him if part of it is because of the absence of national leadership, the part of Native Americans. I think that there are more Filipino leaders in America than there are Native American leaders that really go out and kick butt. Uh, I'm talking with the Martin Luther King Jr.'s. And uh, so many nations, so many peoples, so many nationalities have that one, two, three leader. And did you ever ask Sarah who it is that speaks for Native Americans, all indigenous people in Washington?
1: it's interesting because Native American, no, I haven't. And I will say that what, what Sarah has said to me is that, um, Native Americans are a a small part of the population. I don't have the statistic right in my head, but it's a very, it's a small part of the population. They are the most impoverished, um, uh, have the worst health, uh, health outcomes of, of any different, of any of those kinds of groups in the country. Um, they are, as she will say, so many Native Americans are just struggling to survive and get by. And so a lot of times we, uh, in the church, when we work in the Mennonite church, so many people want to have an indigenous person come and speak. But as Sarah has said, so many indigenous people she knows is, are just trying to like keep um, heart and soul and body together and to keep their cult, their own culture intact. They don't have the uh, uh, so it 's really um, hard, especially in the churches I would say, to just keep on finding all these indigenous people to come do come talk to me, come talk to me, come do this, come do this now, having said that, there are some incredible amazing indigenous leaders, please don 't hear me as saying that, but I would also say that there, there's also just that reality the sec other reality I want to name is that um, there's um you know, there's something like I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't. There are something like several hundred tribal nations in this in this in within what we'll call this country or Turtle Island. Yes. Um, and each of those people has their own language, their own language, their own ways of doing things, their own profound culture. They are each sovereign nations. So to ask one person to speak for all of them, I don't know. It's it's um it's, it 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 they they are very proud people, and they know how to speak for themselves. Each of those groups do. Now, having said that, I hear what you're asking. You're asking for the galvanizing person who can kind of come together and just really bring attention to this. Yes, and, to, get,
0: uh, to get Washington to listen.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say Native people have been doing that for a very, very, very long time. And I think that Native people... Um, um, have I just would say it's we who
0: have not been listening. All right. Sherry, this is the moment. This is it. Now, usually on higher budget shows, there's a drum roll at this time, but we couldn't afford that. <laughs> so this is the moment, Sherry, when you, wrapping this up, we, in two minutes, I'm giving you the opportunity right now to tell the world what it is that would be an ideal political and economic system to fulfill the needs that you're talking about in your book so we and our children may live. Sherry, you're on.
1: You will not like my answer. I am one person. This is what we actually say in our book. Sarah and I say this. We are two people. We don't possibly have the ingenuity and the know-how and the, 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 the smart to tell you what that system is. That is something that we are going to need to come up with together. And that is something that we need to join together in community to, to imagine and bring into being. Now there's, we, we're starting with a, a toy kit. There's a lot of ideas out there. There's already uh, economic ideas and practice out there that we can use in the toolkit. So it's not like we're starting from scratch. But we need everybody to get in the sandbox. With us and uh begin to dr- and begin to imagine together what this system is and to bring it into being and that's going to happen at the local level that's going to happen at the the state and regional levels it's going to happen some of it's going to happen at the national and international levels we need people everywhere to be joining together in this work and that's what we call people to and you know we have to come together to do this this is not going to come from the Mind and uh experience of one person alone, we need to do this together. well, I know two we need people, to build the future together.
0: two people got together and decided that they would write a book about it, and that might be a beginning for a lot of folks to read so we and our children may live and to find out that you know what if you go out, maybe just in your backyard and hug that tree, you might all of a sudden discover. It's hugging your back. And wouldn't that be a nice feeling? Hey, you know what? You found out about all of these wonderful things about people and plants and the world on The God Show. And we're happy to bring it to you at no extra charge whatsoever. I'm Pat McMahon.